to get one to you, please raise your hand high and, and we'll get to one to you eventually. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for this to be a gift from us to you uh, that you could keep or to give away. But raise that hand high. We are in John chapter 9 this morning. I do have one announcement while you're turning to John 9. Uh, we're, gonna, we're changing up, experimenting a little bit with the order of service. What does that mean? So our custom here is to take the Lord's Supper together every single Sunday. We're going to continue to do that, Lord willing. But the difference is we typically do it right after the sermon. We're now going to move it to after the first song after the sermon. So today it'll be different. Preach, pray, song, I'll come back up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. And one of the reasons we made that decision is you, you hear a big, a big sermon. There's a lot to think about. And then when we come up and we go into the Lord's Supper, um, at times it may be hard to transition your mind into hearing the exhortation regarding the supper. So we want to give a time of worship to reflect on how the Spirit ministered to you through the Word and then go into the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're excited about it. So that'll be different this morning. So we're in John 9. We are following Jesus together in the Gospel of John. And the subtitle this morning is The Wholeness of Christ. The Wholeness of Christ. Now, we have a large text. We're going to take all 41 verses, but we only have two points. And on the one hand, what we're going to see in this passage is very familiar to us because we've seen Jesus be rejected multiple times. But we'll also see some new things that take place. And so our attention is going to be focused on the first seven verses and the last five. And that'll make sense as the sermon unfolds. But if you would, join me in John 9. I'm going to read the first seven verses to set God's word before us, pray, and then we'll, we'll get to the sermon. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to the man, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the blind man went, washed, and came back seen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, for many verses and chapters now, you have continually revealed to us who you are, Jesus, being the light of the world, that you are the source of all living water. You use these beautiful metaphors to capture spiritual truths that, Lord, we are all blind apart from your saving grace and the ministry of your spirit. So this morning, as we consider these words that you have set before us in John 9, we pray that you would make us to be your people. You would comfort us. You would strengthen us. You would draw the wayward back to you. You would correct us, convict us. That we would participate in your wholeness, Jesus, in this broken world. And so to that end, Lord, as we look to you, would you smile upon us? Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, all of God's people said, amen. Well, 
As I mentioned a few moments ago, this episode at hand here in John 9 is yet another healing episode. It's another salvation story, and it's another increasing rejection of Jesus episode. We've seen those in the previous chapters, all building up to this moment. And as we settle here in John 9 this morning, we are in a larger literary unit that began back in chapter 7 and will conclude in the middle of chapter 10. So chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, the middle of 10 are all appear to be at the Feast of Booths and all appear to be quick action moments where Jesus is teaching on something. It enrages the religious leaders. They want to kill him. He moves to a new location. And yet why he's doing this, he's confounding the multitudes who is this man who can do these things and say these things? And, and how do you prove yourself and more? So this, what we're going to do, as I said, is we're going to read the whole passage this morning and work through it. But there's a large chunk in the middle, which is the rejection story. And I'm going to make few comments on that. We're just going to read that long section because we're familiar with that, focusing our attention on the bookends of this passage. And here's why. This passage this morning elicits a deep question that all of us have at one time or another pondered and perhaps still ponder. And it's this. Why is there pain, disorder, deformity, and disability in the world? That's, that's this opening question these disciples imply to Jesus in the question that they ask him. Why is there disorder and deformity in the world, and how should we respond? So with that question lingering over us, the sermon comes to us in two points. Here they are. Number one, it's the question, why is there disorder and deformity in the world? And we're going to look at the first nine verses for that. And then we'll move into the second point, how do we respond to disorders and deformity in the world? And that's going to take us all the way down to verse 41. Two points, two questions elicited from this passage. Why and how do we respond? So if you would, look again with me at point number one. Let's look at these first seven verses one more time. Scripture reads, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now note what the question, note the question of the disciples. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, so that he was born blind. Jesus answered in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the spit, with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and the man came back seeing. Well, so here's the episode. So you can just look in your Bible and flip back a page or look at John chapter 8. And Jesus had a long teaching that he is the light of the world. And then we saw most recently at the end of last week that Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That enraged the religious leaders because Jesus was claiming to be Yahweh in the flesh, the burning bush in the flesh, the voice from it rather. 
And so here, now Jesus is leaving the temple. Uh, if you look at verse 59, the last verse of John 8, it says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And as he passed by, he saw. So it's the same episode. It's the same scene of this movie that we're watching, as it were. He's leaving the temple, and his disciples walk along. And what's interesting, in this entire scene right here, the blind man says nothing. He's merely a, he's not a bystander. He's probably laying there by a gate or laying on the side of the road, uh, just left there to perhaps receive somebody's pity. But so this blind man laying there, a man blind from birth, it's he and the disciples walk along, Jesus does. So they pass this blind man from birth. And then here's the question in number two. They want to know, they see he's blind. He's been there his entire life, their whole lives of themselves going up to the temple. They probably saw this man over the years. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents so that he was born blind? So you see they have an assumption. There's an assumption. There's a question behind their question. The assumption is, wow, this guy is having a really hard go at life. I mean, he's blind. That's about as bad as it can get. But their assumption is, wow, his life is so bad, he must have sinned or his parents must have sinned in such a way that God is punishing this man or punishing the parents for their sin. And the thing is, the question that they ask is not an uncommon assumption that many people have when they see hardship or pain or deformity or disability or anything come upon somebody. People might think, wow, that that person, maybe they really did something bad to to anger God. But Jesus's response in verse three is an entirely different perspective. He's actually revealing to them that their question is actually wrong because their assumption is wrong. He says that this man's blindness is for this purpose, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now you hear that, and at first you think, okay, that's that's good news. God is seeking to glorify himself and display the goodness and grandeur of God through this man. But what it still shows us is that God is the one who ordained that this man would be blind from birth. So that then begs another question. Is that right of God to do so and more? So Jesus does not deny the blindness was from God, but Jesus in effect denies the disciples' reasoning, which was basically God is vindictive and that God is is punishing people actively. He says the blind man, this man is blind and is they're, they're basically assuming that he deserves the blindness. That's, that's, the, that's the gist of it. And Jesus is not denying that God did it, but he's denying their assumption. Their question is wrong. Their presumption is wrong. Jesus reveals their premise. Their starting point is in error. So then our first question has to be, why is there sickness, disability, disorder, and deformity in the world? Why does it exist in your life? Why is it here? Because Jesus doesn't deny that God does it, God allows it, God permits it. So the first question is why? And the answer is, we live in both a fallen and cursed world. The effects of sin, the fall, 
reach into the depths of our being materially and immaterially. The physical part of us and the non-physical part of us. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit and rejected God, all of creation changed. It plunged all of the existence of the cosmos, especially people, into sin. And God placed a curse on creation. Thorns and thistles in Genesis 3. And the curse on creation has frustrated now the way that creation works. It's introduced thorns and thistles physically to every part of life and metaphorically to every part of life. You see, our sin places us under God's eternal condemnation and we need Jesus to rescue us. But the curse, what has the curse done? The curse which and sin which introduced death, aging bodies, and the things that we experience, the curse that God placed on creation in Genesis 3, twists and inverts creation. What does that mean? It means now that in a fallen, cursed world, cells mutate. It means that bodies deform from God's original design seen in Adam and Eve. But also immaterially, the the spiritual, mental, will parts of us, those are also deformed. So our desires are deformed by the curse and sin. Our beliefs, our feelings, our emotions, our preferences, our thoughts, our perspectives, everything is under the curse and effects of sin. There is no part of us physically or immaterially that doesn't need the light of Jesus. Nothing in creation since the fall is left Edenic. There's no perfect bodies. There's no perfect cell division. There's mutation and more. And this is why there's sickness, pain, disability, disorder, and deformity. Because this world is no longer the pre-fall Garden of Eden. Everything is broken. Everything is decaying. Everything is infected with sin and because of God's curse. It makes me think kind of, The book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a book that just looks at how the world normally works and how God normally works in the world and just gives us a wise way of living. Well, one thing of living in a fallen world is the expectation that there will be sickness and pain, disability, disorder, and deformity. They are all emblems of the fall. And Scripture presents a number of reasons of how God uses sickness and suffering while himself doing no evil. Scripture never charges God, never faults God of doing any evil or mischief or anything when ordaining that people would be, in the case of this man, blind. And this is contrary to the disciples' belief. And if you dig around in the disciples' belief, there's self-righteousness. They're walking around relatively healthy. They see a blind man. Well, that guy must be really bad. And there's an implicit comparison that my life's not too bad. His is. He's a worse sinner than I am. Wow, what Jesus, what did this guy do to deserve that? That's self-righteousness. We all deserve what the curse and sin places upon us. But scripture does present a number of reasons of how God uses sickness and suffering. Let me give you three. Number one, here's a reason how God uses and why he ordains 
these things, sometimes sickness, deformity, disease, disability, pain is God's active, positive discipline in the life of a Christian. God's loving, active, positive discipline in the life of a Christian. So we could go to 2 Corinthians 12. There the Apostle Paul is talking about these visions that Jesus had been giving him of the new heavens and new earth, of the heavenly glories and more. And Paul was seeing these things that were so glorious, he was not permitted to speak of them. And then it says that God sent a messenger of Satan to buffet or to humble Paul, lest he become prideful for the visions that he was having. He was seeing into the depths of God's plan that weren't revealed in their fullness, and he could have been prideful. And so 2 Corinthians 12 talks about God sending a messenger of Satan to keep him humble. Or a a well-known passage, Hebrews 12, that when God disciplines Christians, and God disciplines us through hardship, through suffering, through pain, through viruses and sicknesses and mutated cells, God treats us as sons and shows that he loves us. Because what's, what is our propensity in difficulty? Life is hard, therefore God must be against me. That's our default assumption. And scripture through Jesus, turns everything upside down and says, no, hardship is actually an evidence of God's love for you because what God does is works all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight and 29, which tells us that God shapes us through trials and suffering in life to shape us into the image of Jesus. So number one, sometimes the reason that there's a disability, there's a disorder, there's a deformity, there's pain or sickness or this man's blindness It's God's active, positive discipline. So you might think that discipline is always negative. It's not true. We'll we'll circle back to that. Number two, sometimes it is God's active response to people who deny and refuse him. So he gives them up to greater sins. We do see that. We do see all throughout the Old Testament, different times that God will afflict somebody with a sickness or a disease. And he does so because they are rebelling against him. And sometimes he does it to get their attention. And sometimes he does it because he's giving them up to greater sin. Think about the life of Pharaoh. Think about Romans 1. Even think about 1 Corinthians 11, where the church was gathering And they were sinning while they were taking communion together. And so God was killing some of them. Interesting passage to read. 1 Corinthians 11. And number three, sometimes and perhaps most often, the reason for sickness, suffering, blindness, disability, cell mutation, almost always is God's hidden, wise, and righteous ends which we won't see until glory. That's what I was talking about with the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs just kind of shows you this is usually how life works best and how to live wisely in the world. So often the baby is born with a deformity or whatever happens or the cell mutates or any of those things happen and we don't know why. We don't know why and it's not until there's we enter into glory that we may have God's eyes to see why and what he was doing in those times. Case in point, book of Job. Do you remember Job? 
Or, as Jesus indicates here, the blind man. Sometimes deformity, sometimes disability can happen from the womb. Sometimes it happens later in life. But God allows the brokenness and the curse and sin of this world. And he is able, because he is so good, to work in, through, behind, and before human sin and suffering and deformity to bring about his good and saving and redeeming gospel purposes. I think C.S. Lewis is, is right when he notes, pain is God's megaphone to get our attention. It is a good means, I guess, that God uses to get our attention. It's interesting that one of the things that Paul talks to Israel, Paul, that God talks to Israel about in the book of Deuteronomy before they go into the promised land, they're going to go into the promised land, they're going to fight the battles, but they're going to inherit all of these fields and vineyards and cities and all of these things. And they're going to be prone to think, it was our righteousness that brought us into this place. We deserve these fortified cities that we didn't build. We deserve these large and luscious crops that we didn't plant. We deserve these things. And when things are good and great and nice and easy, they're prone to forget their need of God. Sometimes God uses pain as a megaphone to get our attention. So for the wayward Christian who's professed Christ but closes his heart to Christ's word and goes and lives doing what's right in their own eyes, it may be that your life keeps coming up to dead ends and problems and pains because God is seeking to bring you back to your senses and to Christ. Discipline, Hebrews 12 reminds us, is never enjoyable. We're not spiritual masochists. Scripture does not tell us to, in, in this, to enjoy the discipline, but that it's, it's, it's God's hand, like a father in our lives, to shape us into the image of Jesus. And here's an important thing, especially for the life of a believer. They wonder who sinned, this guy or his parents, so that you're, God's punishing him. That's what's implicit in their question. You see, God's discipline in the life of a believer is never punishment. Do you know why? Because all the punishment due to us fell on Christ on the cross. God is not vindictive against us. He is not punishing us. He is not an unrighteous and angry father who is overly angry and frustrated and and just bringing down pain. No, God's discipline in Hebrews 12 is treating us like sons. It's always formative discipline. Like a doctor cutting and curing away something, or a father training up a child, even letting them fall when they're learning to walk or more, or a coach making an athlete do what they don't want to do so they can become more than what they wanted to become. God actively works in our lives not to punish us, but to shape us and form us. And it oftentimes doesn't feel good, but God has good and wise ends. All that God does in the Christian is ultimately to form us again into the image of Jesus. So if you've walked in here this morning and you're experiencing hardship as a believer, if you have that deformity, if you have that disability, if you have that sickness, understand that God only has good purposes in this hardship. And he's using the brokenness of this world, permitting this to happen for your good, for others' salvation, and more. But if you're not a Christian... The pain in your life is God's voice to you, 
telling you to repent of your sin and turn to Christ in faith. Verse 3 here in John 9, God ordained this man's blindness so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So from eternity, God ordained, God planned that this man, when he was being formed in his mother's womb, that whatever would take place in the formation of his body, his eyes would not see. They would be broken. And that difficult pain and hardship would be for his parents and their walk with God, siblings, those connected to the family, and this man. And that, my friends, is God's intention with you. What Jesus says about this blind man, that the works of God might be displayed in him, is the same biblical banner that flies over our lives. God doesn't just do it with select people. He does it with all of his people. That's how we ought to make sense through the hardships and pains. We'll return to that in a little bit. But what what do we see Jesus do? Jesus spits on the ground and he takes this dust and makes mud and he puts it on the man's eyes and then tells the man to go. We don't hear the man speak yet. What is this guy thinking? I'm going to presume that he's heard of Jesus and he's heard the commotion. He knows all is going down. But what would it have been like to have been him? He hears this conversation taking place. He hears the man spit and then he feels wetness on his eyes. Is he thinking that they're mocking him? Because to be sure, he's most likely been mocked and ridiculed his life. Because especially if you believe that this guy's blind because he was super bad, well, he's worse than you. So people would mock him in their self-righteousness. But I know that there's kindness in Jesus' voice. And so he would have known something was going on and he, without hesitation, appeared to obey Jesus. But this is a strange episode, isn't it? Jesus spitting. What's he doing? Well, he's doing something magnificent. You know what he's doing, right? It's Genesis 2. When was the last time God worked with dirt? When he made Adam. So God makes Adam out of the dust of the ground in Genesis 2. Jesus, now the last Adam, the new Adam, Jesus uses the dust of the ground mingled with his own spit to place on the eyes of this man and create what wasn't there before, sight. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is showing that this man, blind, now being able to see, not because he washed in a pool, but because Jesus healed him. And this man is sent off to the pool of Siloam and seeing that Jesus is God. I wonder what it was like for this man to blindly make his way to that pool. I have no idea how long it took, but was his pulse up, breathing increased? Was he hopeful that finally, because we've been at this pool before when Jesus healed the paralyzed man back in John 5, and and there the guy was um, despondent because there was no one to put him in the pool. This guy wasn't even by the pool. And they believed it was a magic pool that would heal them at certain times, and it wasn't magic. What would it have been like to be this man? I do think that there's a a word for us there in what it's like to be this man, that many of us spend our days asking God to heal us and And he doesn't. We'll come back to that. From Jesus' words, we discern that this man's blindness is a result of the fall, no doubt. It's been appointed by God to be sure. And yet God has glorious gospel purposes in it. God does not waste 
suffering. God does not waste disability. He does not waste depression and mental illness. God does not waste any of these things that because of the fall, our bodies are beset by. God redeems them for his children. And this leads us to the second point. Now I'm going to start in verse 8. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter to set the whole context before us. Look at verse 8. The neighbors of those who had seen him, talking about the blind man, before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. And others said, no, but he's like him. And the blind man kept saying, I am. There's a play on words here of Jesus' I am statements. He's now become an evangelist. I am, verse 10. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And the blind man, now seeing, said, I don't know. They brought, verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day. That should alert you. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? But there was division among them, the Pharisees. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the man said, he is a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. And then John inserts this parenthesis in verse 22 about why they said this. His parents said these things Because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's excommunicated from the community. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, verse 24, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, 
and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And the man answered, and and who is he, sir? So that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said, are we also blind? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Like the episode of the Samaritan woman, Jesus has come to a social outcast and blessed the social outcast, has saved a social outcast. But unlike the episode of the Samaritan woman who where she became an evangelist and she went and her whole town believed and came out to Jesus... Here, this blind man is brought right to the heart of the religious uh, power in Israel, and they refuse to believe. They reject all the testimony of all the witnesses when their own Bible tells them on the testimony of two or three witnesses, uh, a charge is established. So in this case, if his parents are saying, yes, he was born blind, and this guy says, yes, he was born blind, and the crowd say, yeah, he, he was the blind man, they are obligated by the Bible to believe, and they don't. Instead, this miracle, unprecedented in history, to give a blind man sight, was not only met with disbelief, but outright hostility, rejection, and excommunication. I mean, it should have been on the news. Flyers and posters, there should have been festivals at this miracle that Jesus performed. And instead, they continue to seek to kill Jesus. And then because this guy now has his sight, they remove him from the community. He is put outside the um, covenant boundaries of national Israel and made an outcast. You see, Jesus gave this man a testimony. Like he has given to you and to me, though. This man gained his sight... And then he lost everything only to gain Christ. You see that? This man gained his sight, then lost everything because of excommunication, because of Jesus. Jesus came into his life and his life seemed to get a whole lot worse, but then he gained Christ. And to gain Christ is to gain all of eternal glory. Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, Now I see. Right there in those words in verse 25, friends, you are seeing your testimony right there. You need to understand that no one can take your sight away now that Jesus has given it to you. He gave this man literal sight so this man could have spiritual sight. Because do you remember what we heard about sight in John chapter 3? No one can see 
the kingdom of God, let alone enter it unless he is born again. And so this man can now see because he has literal sight, but he also has a new heart. And friends, when we see Jesus, here's the good news. You can't unsee him. And that's the best news. That's great news. But the very question of the Pharisees in verse 40, when they say to Jesus, so, so somehow, however this episode goes down, the man goes to the pool, Jesus goes and finds him sometime later. Apparently there was a band of Pharisees following him around and they say, are we blind also? And when they ask that in verse 40, it proves Jesus's point. In other words, they think they see accurately. They think they interpret the Bible accurately. They, they, they see themselves above and outside the need of all the grace that the Bible and Christ give. And therefore, even though they see, they're actually blind. They have the cancer of sin. They reject the good physician's diagnosis. And they keep doing what is right in their own eyes rather than God's eyes. They don't see the light. Is this you? It's very possible that you've come here and you sit here week after week after week and you hear the good physician speak to you from his word, diagnosing week after week those areas of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, and more. The, the doing what is right in our own eyes, friends. Once again in this evangelistic book, we are confronted with which person are we? Who do we identify with? Are we like the blind man who, although we are blind now that we see, or are we like the Pharisees who say... Are we blind also? Because I can see just fine. If you think that you can see, and if you think you can live on your own terms rather than Jesus' terms, right now, friend, Jesus is telling you from his word, you are blind and you need his light to see. You need him to let you see your sin as filthy as it is and to put it on the cross of Christ as it were. Ask him to open your eyes. But now let's circle back to the question at the beginning. We looked at why does God permit and what does God do in the permission of, of, of sickness and suffering. But, but let's think about how God ordains and permits deformity, disability. Unlike the blind man, the majority of Christians do not get healed. I don't need to ask for a show of hands to ask of how many of you have prayed. We're praying for Lucy right now, aren't we? The majority of Christians do not get healed. And in many cases, life gets harder until he brings them home. But it'd be wrong to interpret the difficulty as God's anger against us. It's possible that you have a nagging ailment. It's possible that you have difficulty, that you have prayed for Jesus to heal and he hasn't. And perhaps a passage like this You can meet it with cynicism or even despair. That's really good news for him, Jesus. But I've been asking you for decades and you have not. You have not healed. You have not removed. So what do you do with that? If the majority of Christians do not get healed, what do you do with the fact that what we've already seen God's purposes? We know they're good and not meant to cast us doubt, but... But I want to think about what Joni Erickson Tata thinks. 
If you don't know who she is, she was an athletic young woman who broke her neck doing an inward pike off a boat into a lake in 1967. She instantly, when her head hit the ground, became a quadriplegic at 17. She played all the sports. And since 1967, she has lived in a wheelchair. She turns the pages of her Bible with a stick in her mouth. And she's done so since 1967. In 2019, she wrote an article about why she praises God for not healing her. Even as her suffering has increased, scoliosis, cancer, more. Here's what she writes. She's, she's referring to the accident when it took place in 67. Months later, when the permanency of my paralysis began to sink in, I felt my life was over. I was a Christian back then, but life in Christ didn't define who I was. True, I understood I was a new creation with a new heart, at least in theory, but I didn't live like it. So after my accident, I dug into my Bible for help, hoping that Jesus would give me back all that I'd lost. I wanted, I needed, she says, my body back. And so I made the rounds at local healing services, following every scriptural injunction that might qualify me for physical healing. Elders prayed and anointed me with oil. I confessed more and more sins that I could recall. But after two visits to Catherine Coleman, healing crusades, false teacher, she's the Benny Hinn of her day, I plummeted into despair. My arms and legs remained unresponsive. Didn't God know I was lost without limbs that worked? Didn't he understand I was a strong athlete on the inside? Surely he knew I was the least likely candidate to enjoy life in a wheelchair. After the third healing crusade, my sister drove me home to our Maryland farm. All the way home, I kept fuming. What kind of savior, what kind of rescuer or healer would refuse the prayer of a paralytic? Especially a paralytic who claims Christ is her savior. I felt bewildered and utterly lost. One morning, I awoke early, looked around my shadowy bedroom, and decided I didn't want to get up. If I can't be healed, I thought, then I'm just not going to do this. I'm not going to live this way. I stayed in bed that day and the next and the next week. The despair was claustrophobic and I finally whimpered in prayer. I can't live this way. I'm so lost. God, show me how to live. It was my first plea to help. Next came fresh days when my sister would get me up, plop a Bible on a music stand, park my wheelchair in front of it, and with a stick in my mouth, I would flip this way and that, trying to make sense of it all. And on she goes. So for the last 50 years in my wheelchair, I have been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. My goal is to mortify my fleshly desires so I might find myself in Christ. God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart, things from which I need to be healed. Does God miraculously heal? Sure he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purge sin 
a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. It's all to the praise of deeper healing in Christ. I've mentioned the story of Warren Mattingly. He was a man who attended the church that I got saved in, in college. His body was so deformed, I had never seen deformity like that. He was probably in his early 40s. Um, His legs were shriveled, his arms were shriveled in, in strange position. It was painful to look at him, it was painful to hear him talk. Uh, his his face was constantly um, drooling and, and dripping snot. Um, his voice was hard to understand. And that man worshipped. He would sing the loudest in the church. It was beautiful. He's with Jesus now. His His body couldn't sustain the deformities. And so he died some years ago. And he was an evangelist. He would sit at his computer... And however he worked it, with the unique species of deformity that he had, he used that to evangelize and strengthen and encourage people who had similar attributes as him. His experience of the curse was not cause for cursing God. It was fuel for blessing God. And he loved his Jesus and worshipped. The blind man got healed. Joni didn't. Warren didn't, but he's healed now with the Lord. And so this too is the verse three again, that the works of God might be displayed in him. But you listen to these words of Jonies about Christ, our light and our healer, and you might be tempted to think that God is cruel to do that to Warren or to do it to Joni or to do it to you or to do it to a family member. You might be tempted to think that God has no idea what you're going through. So there's one more place that we need to go to finish our time to think about how we respond to those times that Jesus doesn't heal and yet still gives us sight of heart. The place we have to go is to the light itself. And for that, we go to Isaiah 53. Would you please join me in Isaiah 53? You might hear these stories of these people and think that maybe they had some special relationship with God that you can't have but you're still convinced that God is cruel, that he has no idea what you're going through in that pain. But what you need, friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ to inform and correct us. Isaiah 53, we're only going to look at verses 2 through 6. Speaking of Jesus, listen to this description of Christ 700 years plus before the cross. Beginning in verse 2, scripture reads, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. There in verse three, when it says a man of sorrows, the word sorrows in Hebrew is also translated pains. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of pains. 
sorrows, acquainted with grief. And the word for grief there is also the same word in Hebrew for sicknesses. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and sickness. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he, Jesus, has carried our griefs and carried our sorrows and yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted verses five and six but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray, verse 6. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus knows exactly, even better than you do, your own pain, sorrow, suffering, and more. You see, verse 2 tells us that Jesus did not look physically appealing. There was nothing heroic or handsome about his stature. The text says he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was not handsome. He was not attractive. To see him in a crowd, he may have even been the opposite. Quite unattractive. That people would not look at him and be compelled to follow him by the way that he looked. Or, or you go down to verses 5 and 6, and these verses 5 and 6 gloriously reveal the center of the gospel. Remember, the center of the gospel is that our sin and rebellion against God was laid on Jesus so that Jesus could atone for it. And all of those sins that wreck the way life works, that wreck us and wreck others and others wreck us with it and more, Jesus took those sins, the iniquity of us all was laid on him. But did you catch also what else was laid on him at the cross in verses 3 and 4? Penal substitutionary atonement, the legal removal of our guilt before Christ, is the center of the gem of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not all that he accomplished. He accomplished more. What else did he carry for us? Verses 5 and 6. Excuse me, verses 3 and 4. He carried our sorrows and pains. He carried your griefs and your sicknesses up on that cross too. So the answer is, not only did Jesus suffer for your sin, he also took the sin upon himself and every effect of the curse on you in this world. He also took that upon himself. The entire thing. He suffered for your sorrows and carried them. Your pains, your griefs, your sicknesses, your disorders, and more. The entirety of the effects of the fall, sin, and curse in your life were summed up and placed on Jesus when he died and atoned for your sins to wash you clean with his blood, to make you whole and make you an adopted daughter and son of God. So no, God is not cruel. He is kind and he has suffered in all of your suffering, with you and for you. No, the triune God knows exactly what you're going through, because he's carried it all upon himself on the cross through his life, death, and resurrection. There is only one place in the whole universe to take your deformities and disorders, to take the mutated cells and to take 
the mental illness. To take your sin, to take your sorrow and shame. There's only one place in the whole universe to take those effects of the fall and the ramifications of the curse. And that is at the cross of Jesus Christ to gaze at his empty tomb. Because what did he say on the cross? It is finished. Paid in full. And death couldn't hold him. He killed death and rose from the grave. Praise God. This is why Joni has spent her life ministering the gospel. This is why our blind brother from this chapter in John 9 became an evangelist of the work of Christ in his life and joined Jesus. This is why Warren spent his life in front of the computers evangelizing his lost friends who shared the same deformities as he did. If Joni can do it and Warren can do it and if the John 8 man not John 9 man can do it friends this means that by God's grace grace by faith we can do it as well you can do it as well because it's not you doing it it's God's grace in you by his spirit so this is not trite when we look back on this life from the vantage point of 400 million years from now and you see that thing that that prayer that Jesus never answered the way you wanted to. Right? Every prayer is answered. It's either yes, no, or not yet. Or something else. But when you look back 400 million years from now, when you're in glory, and you look back on those prayers that didn't seem answered the way that you wanted them to be answered, you will understand and see the sheer ramifications that the works of God might be displayed in you. So the question is, do you see the light? Amen? Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the light of the world. We thank you, Jesus, that you're, you can cause the, the blind to see, literally, and all of us, spiritually, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of God. Lord, we, we, we pray, Lord, that you would let us see here now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand to sing, and I'll lead us in the Lord's Supper.